from Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 117. Today's show is brought to you by Smile, Encapsula, Mac Weldon, and MailRoute. My name is Mike Hurley. I am joined by the one and only Mr. Jason Snell. Hi, Mike. Are you the one and only Mr. Jason Snell? Oh, man, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> you would think. Shame. The internet has ruined... No, there's a, there's a Jason Snell who actually... The one I get the most is there's a Jason Snell who works or worked at Industrial Light and Magic doing um, 3D match move stuff. And, I, and, and uh, so he's involved in that and, uh, and again, lives or lived in the same county as me. Mm-hmm. So at one point I actually donated blood and they said, is this your birthday? And I was like, uh... Or no, I went in for a blood test and they're like, what, is this your birthday? They're putting me in the system. I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not, no. I think Jason's you have the other, the other one. And they're like, oh, okay. Um, so you are the one of many Jason Snell then. Yeah, the occasionally he, he wins awards and stuff and people are like, Jason, I had no idea that you also did computer animation. It's like, nope, <laughs> not me. You need to that's ride that one. train, man. And there's also like a guy who's like a bluegrass musician in the Midwest somewhere who's huh. Jason Snell and he's got a band and stuff and occasionally a Google alert comes on on for those. And the saddest of my Google alerts, because I do have a Google alert for me um, that I set up a million years ago, is that there was a guy with my name in Hawaii, I think, who was found dead by the side of the road. Oh, man. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Uh, yeah. I have a uh, Michael Hurley. I have, uh, he is an American folk singer. Hmm. But I totally dominate Mike with a yep. Y Hurley. As well, you, Mike, you know, Mike with a Y makes all the difference, right? Exactly, exactly. Smart. Having a Wikipedia page as well gives me that nice little bio yeah. on Google. Oh yeah, that's. I'm sure I told you this story before, but back in the early days, I uh, so our. Uh, uh, my colleague at uh, Macworld for many years and incomparable panelist Philip Michaels. I reg- registered philipmichaels.com and he had a he had a blog for a while that I think is not alive uh, anymore. Although I still got the files called the Trials of Philip Michaels and it was all of his sort of funny things he wrote. And I w- he he would write funny things in email to a group of friends. This is so old, so long ago. And then I would just post them to the internet for him because <laughs> we had no. Uh, anyway, so so one day he gets an email from a guy named Philip Michaels. And the letter is basically, stop using your name on the internet because people search for me and they can't find me. All they find is your dumb things that you write on the internet. And and I think his response back was, sorry, it's my name too. I'm not going to not use it. But, you know, it's like uh, that early in the internet, I think people didn't understand how it worked. But uh, he definitely yes. had the upper hand on all other. And that's a that's a pretty common kind of name. About, you know, Philip Michaels, there's got to be thousands of them. And uh, but he had the he has the domain or more accurately, I have the domain and the uh, and and he had all of the search engine stuff. And that other guy was just uh, out of luck. But he was really bent out of shape about it. That's, that's crazy. Man, to think, I love the idea as well that you were just taking emails and just posting them online. Yeah. The TV blog was the same way. That was that was an, a, an email, not even a mailing list. It was like literally people just like with 15 people in the two line uh-huh. replying to all with funny things about television. And I was re- I was doing something for Mac user where I was testing like a web server. And I was like, oh, what if I did a, you know, we didn't even have a word for it back then. What if I could set up a template and then we could post these items on the internet and make a website with things on them? Because we couldn't even, the blog was not a thing then. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's how that started too. Same thing. It was just like we were circulating our funny things in email. And uh, I was like, hey, what if we put that on the internet for other people to read? And the Imagine irony that. of this, of course, is uh, well, it's not irony, but I'll just point out that uh, 
Phil met Lisa Schmeiser, his wife of many years now, uh, because she saw his funny things that he wrote on his website that I made. Look what you did. So look, yep, yep. Look what I you win. did. I, I well, he wins, but I helped because <laughs> I made a website. I got his brilliance out there for the world to see, including his future wife. So that's how things used to work before there was Tumblr, kids. Uh, you had to have a friend who knew how to run a web server to put your funny things on the internet. Jason, did you get your Thanksgiving 5K badge on your Apple Watch? I did not. Good man. I, I, I did not. <laughs> I'm almost more proud of you because you didn't, you know? No, but here's the sad thing, Mike, is on Thanksgiving Day, I walked probably oh. six or seven K. Oh, I saw you tweet about this. <laughs> yeah, well, so we took a we took a walk in the morning. So we we were um, visiting my sister in law who lives about four hours from here, uh, which is nice. Uh, she used to live on the east coast, and she moved back, and she lives right between where we live and where uh, the, uh, Lauren and her you know Lauren's parents live. Uh, and so it's easier for everybody. Basically, we first off we can all get together, and mm-hmm. uh, we can drive four hours and they can drive four or five hours and we're all together it's great and it's up it's up in the foothills it's a very much the same um uh terrain as where i grew up it's you know it's a a, you know 50 miles south of where i grew up but it's very much at the same altitude and it's the same climate and it's the same countryside it's great it's out in the out in the country and uh her land backs up on this uh you know, like a kind of hilly uh, open space, basically. And and so she has legal access to go back there. And that's where she takes walks with her dogs. She's got three dogs. And so we all went out on Thanksgiving morning uh, um, with four dogs because we brought our dog too. It's like a little dog vacation. And uh, we had a great walk and up hills and down hills and, and through meadows. And it was amazing. And we get back to start uh, cooking dinner. And it's... Um, or or Thanksgiving meal, whatever it is, because I think we ate it at like two or three in the afternoon. Uh, and I wasn't quite at five k. I was a little bit short. I was at I was at like three miles or two and a half miles. I I was a little bit short, but not a lot short. And I thought if I didn't have to go in and prep the turkey right now, because I I roasted the turkey, uh, I would just go. Uh, out on the street and walk around a little bit and get this stupid badge. But instead I thought, no, I've got things to do. So I stopped. And then after dinner, of course, we went back out for another little bit of a walk. And I, I, you know, logged that one too. And if you put them both together, it was totally more than 5K. But uh, the way that Apple's badge thing worked, it sounds like if you you tried to add multiple ones together and they, they said, make a workout of more than 5k and apparently also if you used a fitness app that uses the like the api but doesn't that isn't a workout started in the workout app on apple watch Mm. you didn't get it either so So close um i i but i applaud apple for doing it i think it's a fun idea i think that they should make more challenges like that where they try to encourage people to do it i think it's gamifying fitness on a broader level you know get everybody to do a boxing day you know a boxing day walk of of at least three miles or something like that. I think stuff like that, it's kind of fun. Everybody's sharing their badges and talking about it and you don't have to do it, but you know, I I think it's a fun idea. So anyway, I did, I did walk more than 5k hike Mm -hmm. really more than 5k just, uh, but no, no Turkey badge for me. Alas. Did you do anything special? You, I saw a photo that suggests that you did, despite not having a reservation when we talked, have an American style Thanksgiving uh, meal last week. In between the time that we spoke, and Thanksgiving, we decided to go to a restaurant and we had a great Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, I saw it. It was yeah, it was all it was uh, brilliant. 
all the stuff, right? You know, it looks like you had turkey and and all the uh, trimmings. All, all the trimmings, trimmings. yeah. Yeah, Fantastic. it was really good. I'm really pleased that we did it because Adina really wanted to to do that. She wanted to go and have a nice Thanksgiving meal because she never had it before and she was jealous that I did a couple of years ago, I think. So yeah, we yeah. did that and it was it was really, really nice. We had a we had a great we had a great time with that one. It's fun. Were there were were there lots of Americans around you? I think so. Uh, it, I, I think so. It's hard to tell. Um, but I assume so. <laughs> Cowboy hats. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how you identify the Americans. <laughs> exactly, because that that I couldn't necessarily hear everybody. Yeah, um, I, I wasn't sure how to uh, how to identify them. Yeah, mm. cowboy hats, little flags, you know, yeah. the whole nine yards. Sure, but yeah, no, it was really nice. It was really, really, really nice. I love. Great, I'm food. glad you did that. I love the food that you Americans decide to eat for Thanksgiving. Well, and for you, it's like it's like a little uh, like bonus Christmas, right? Because yeah, it's the same it's like, sort of idea. It's like sugar Christmas, I guess. Would probably be the way that I put it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of how it is. The extra sugary stuff uh-huh. on top. Yeah. Well, Everywhere. we like it that way. Sure do, and that's why I love America so much. Um, I, there was a, I want to mention this little product that got announced today uh, by our yeah. friends at Studio Neat. Uh, I will just say right off the top, not only are uh, Tom and Dan of Studio Neat friends of mine, I host a podcast with them on Relay FM called Thoroughly Considered. Yes. I just want to mention that because we're about to talk about one of their products uh, because it's cool, um, but you're the one who's been using it anyway. Yeah, I've been using this. I don't even know how long now. Months. Many months. Uh, many I remember. Months. I remember having one sent to me to give to Federico at WWDC. Yeah. So it's been a long time. This has been in development. It's been a very long time coming. Um, in fact, I'm I'm scrolling back through uh, through Slack, and I, I think I got it in February. Right. So that a long right. time ago, and those were handmade concept versions where they're like. Um, you know, he, he's, he's cutting the material and putting it together and, uh, and they made some changes since then. They, they actually, based on the feedback, they changed uh, sort of like how the snap is put together and, and, uh, and a little bit of the angle of view, but it's, so I've been using this and I've been on some, some shows like twit where people have seen it and said, what is that? And I've said, it's, uh, it's not a product that is, is out yet. So I can't help you with it. But one of my favorite accessories for the iPad has been the origami, the in-case origami workstation, which is a little case that you snap the old Apple Bluetooth keyboard into, and it's a super small, very you know, very compact carrying case, and then you fold it open and fold it back. It's got a little Velcro kind of thing, and you put you, you sort of stick your iPad in it, and you've got an iPad uh, workstation basically. Uh, with the with the standard Apple keyboard of the time. Now the problem is the iPads are bigger, the bezels are smaller, uh, the dimen- and, and that's the old keyboard. The dimensions are not as it's still usable, but it's not as it's not as great as it used to be with like a modern iPad. So the canopy from Studio Neat is, uh, a, I guess, basically a new take on that same concept. It's not quite the same as the origami in that the origami had sort of like these little wings that you folded over and then Velcroed and all of that. The canopy doesn't work like that. The ca- canopy has basically uh, three surfaces and uh, and you and a snap to close it. And then when you open it up, you fold two of the surfaces back around and snap them back together. And that and that is the base of it. And it's designed for the Magic Keyboard, and it will only really fit the Magic Keyboard. Other keyboards are... if It's it's exactly the size of the Magic Keyboard. But if you... And it's got this, like, super uh, suction-y 
uh, stickum stuff on the back. So you, you can take it on and off, but if you put it down, it, it, it's held uh, quite well to the to the canopy case. You just sort of like line it up and stick it down and it, it'll, it'll stay there uh, forever. And then, so it wraps up very, again, compact carrying case. You've got a little Bluetooth keyboard. The Magic Keyboard's a really nice keyboard. And then you open you unsnap it open it up fold it around the back and snap it again and put your ipad in it and now you've got a full apple magic keyboard and your ipad uh to do work and i've been i've used it all the time because i don't love cases that you have to snap your ipad into because it takes work to get them back out again also and adds this bulk is nice. and weight and all that stuff right it does do all right that. And, and you're carrying it all around. So so for, for this, it adds very little weight to the existing Magic Keyboard, and it's a carrying case for the keyboard. So I throw the keyboard in a bag. I did it this, you know, for Thanksgiving. You throw the keyboard in a bag. It's there if you need it, and it will serve as its own, uh, you know, it's also its own stand for the iPad. So if I want to write an article, I will get out the keyboard, and I'll, I'll set it up, and I'll drop the iPad in, and I'll write. But when I want to walk away, I just pick up my iPad and walk away. It's not snapped in or attached. It's just sitting in the canopy. So mm-hmm. uh, so I like it. It's it's a very specific product for a very specific use case. But if you like the Magic Keyboard, if you like the idea of having a keyboard at the ready, but not having, you know, this keyboard attachment, uh, then I think it's a I think it's a great option. And I, I have used I have used it more than any other iPad keyboard thing since I got it. It fills uh, a need that doesn't exist anymore, right? Well, it feels like a, a <laughs> hole in the market. That's what I'm saying. Because the origami has gone away, right? There's no yeah. more origami. No, that, that, origami that's case. it. This, this is I had dreamed about a uh, a next gen origami because I really like that idea of take Apple's standard external keyboard and make a nice case that also turns into a stand for my iPad, like. That that was what I was looking for, and uh, and this is what this is with the Magic Keyboard. So you know, again, it, there are other use cases where a uh, putting it in a keyboard case is better. I know you know you and I both really like the the Logitech Create uh, the nine point seven. It's a very uh, very nice keyboard case, uh, but it is a case, and you're carrying it around. So you know, it depends. Everybody's got there's no right or wrong here. Everybody's got different uses. But for the way I use my big iPad Pro, this is generally the best fit because uh you know most of the time i just want to have the keyboard away somewhere and i'll pull it out if i need to use it yeah it is really nice i'm i'm just not a fan of that keyboard Uh, i don't know why i've used it like once or twice and i used it for a day and my hands were on fire huh interesting i don't know why i couldn't tell you why i use so many keyboards that are like that one but there was just something about that keyboard. I still have one. It's like it's it's in a it's in a drawer. Maybe I'll use it one day well, for something. But I I wish you know I, my my biggest criticism of it is probably that I wish that of the of the of the canopy is that it its strength is that it is made exactly for the Magic Keyboard and the Magic Keyboard is the right if you're going to make a a product like this for one keyboard that's the right keyboard to make yeah. it for. The the downside of that is there are some other really good Bluetooth keyboards that are good with uh, iPads, and you can't use it with that. <laughs> Just like with the Origami back in the day, it's made for the one keyboard. It won't work with any other keyboards. Yeah. So um, if you like the Magic Keyboard, uh, and a lot of people do, and want to use it with your iPad, and, and I mean, it's it, like, yeah, this fits a very specific niche, but it happens to be one that I, I really appreciate. So I uh, I like this product a lot. 
So you can go and check it out. There'll be a link in the show notes, um, but it's studioneat.com. I think they're taking pre-orders for it right now. Yeah. Uh, studioneats.com slash product slash canopy if you're interested. Yeah. But it's it's good to talk about it since I've been using it for whatever it is now. Yeah. You're um, one of the lucky few that's months. had it for a while. But yeah, they're, they're shipping it in the coming weeks, so you can you can go check it out. And we're going to yeah. be uh, recording an episode, I think, of Thoroughly Considered next week uh, where we're going to talk about this because this has been a... Um, this has been a long and interesting process in trying to get this product made. So if you're interested, yeah, you I'm looking out. forward to the the story because I've mm-hmm. only seen the one little bit as being you know as being a test case for the the initial hand cut test version. Yeah. All right. This week's episode is brought to you in part by our friends over at Mac Weldon, the company that produces amazing comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you're going to love. And if you're not wearing them, if you're not wearing Mack Weldon right now for some crazy reason, Mack Weldon is going to be better than whatever you're wearing right now because they believe in all the things that are important. They believe in smart design. I know you are. You always are. I am. Uh, (laughs) They believe in smart design, premium fabrics. Thank you for sharing. And simple shopping experiences. I'm not going to take this lying down, your suggestion that Mack Weldon stuff is better than what I'm wearing now. It is not, because it is already Mack Weldon. All right, go on. Go ahead. Fine. I've got to give you that moment. I know. uh, Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Mack Weldon. No, Mack Weldon. Oh, Mack Weldon. I see. Mack Weldon. They're the company that make the comfortable underwear, Jason. Not not the company that made magazines. Okay. I am suitably chastened. Mack Weldon believe in making everything fun and good for you. That's how I like to think about Mac Weldon. Comfort. They want to make it th- everything easy when you go shopping, right? They want to give you discounts when you shop. They're all about that. And they also care about science. Mac Weldon have developed a line of silver underwear and shirts as well, undershirts that are naturally antimicrobial. They eliminate odor by the use of silver science. That's that's yep. that's what I believe is what it's called, silver science. Mhm. And as we, have established, as we have established, it will ward off werewolves. Well, well, werewolves will not bite you if you are wearing silver things. It's just a scientific package. It's part of silver science, in fact. It's part of all of it. It's the whole package, really. Mac Weldon stuff is not only comfortable, it also looks good and performs well. If you're wearing this stuff when you're working out, going to work, or just lounging around the house, you're going to be set. Listeners of this show can get 20% off at MacWeldon.com. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com with the code UPGRADE. Be like me and Jason and wear Woo. Mac Weldon. Yeah. Thank you so much to Mac Weldon for their support of this show and Relay FM. Be like us. I don't know why you, you bombard me during the Mac Weldon ads, but you do, and I enjoy it. I think the most entertaining podcast ads are where there are things going on in them and you can't skip them. That's the that's the beauty of it. And I, I for some reason I plus I, I do have those things so I can actually talk about them and, and uh, it's yep. also fun to just uh, to just, just derail me. Push, See where push I go. your buttons a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. I appreciate yeah. it. Werewolves. You and John Gruber had a great talk on the talk show, which I actually got to after the last episode because I didn't want to spoil our show by hearing you uh-huh. talk about everything and I decided I didn't want to talk about any of it. That's smart. So plus it was seven I think it was seventeen hours long. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. It was it was it was, it was long. It, it was, was a long. big one. But it was a great one. Um and there was a bunch of uh brouhaha after oh, this boy. show, I guess is a way to, to, to 
to, to focus on it, which was effectively you and, and John spoke about Johnny Ive a little bit on the show and were kind of throwing around the idea about the Design by Apple in California book indicating the potential longevity of Ives' career and also kind of what his focus is. Basically, the same conversations that me and you had, the same conversations yep. that uh, Federico and Steven had, the same conversations yep. that they had on ATP. Mm-hmm. But there was a problem with the talk show. For some reason, it's the only podcast that I know in, in kind of the Apple technology sphere that will get verbatim quoted as, as fact. Yeah, Gruber's reputation is is to blame for this, right? It's like people are like, oh, he knows stuff to the point where now he has to sort of disclaim a lot when he writes saying, I don't actually know this. I'm just guessing because people kind of assume that he knows all the secrets, mm-hmm. which isn't really true. He does have good connections there. And after this all happened, he got some people to little birdies, as he says, to tell him uh, positive things about Johnny Ive's commitment to Apple. Um Sort of, but uh, it, it's it's there's more the Kremlinology of Apple, like which we do here sometimes, and there's there's deep holes of Apple Kremlinology around the internet. Um, they watch Gruber, like like Gruber is considered a you know connected to the Politburo in some way where they can yep. do the Kremlinology through him, and so. You know, ironically, one of the things that we talk about and that Marco has talked about before on ATP about how one of the beautiful things about podcasting is it's off the cuff. It's not as considered as writing. Um, it's you, your thoughts can evolve as you have the conversation. And because nobody has yet, and I'm, I'm shocked that this has not yet happened, nobody has yet turned a text-to-speech engine on all podcasts and dumped them into Google like Google hasn't done that. I'm really surprised that that hasn't happened, that that all things everybody says on a podcast are not yet indexable, but I think it will happen. And I am terrified for that day. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a challenge, but but the the um you know, it it allows you to kind of think these things out and be a little bit imprecise and and it just kind of goes in its own little universe and you and you have to listen and you have to get the context of it, right? So because John is in this, uh, you know, he he's he's considered connected enough that that uh, what he says can be part of Apple Kremlinology, um, what he said about Johnny Ive, which he did not properly disclaim, and he wrote a piece about how, you know, if you listen to the context, you can really understand that, but if you take the direct quote, you can't, was picked up and quoted in an article by, I think, Apple Insider about this. And in fact, the writer admitted to me, because I wrote to him, um, so what happened was worse than that, which yeah, is I, I got I started getting tweets saying um, Jason said Jason's sources at Apple say that Johnny Ive is no longer involved in uh, product design. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? And I, I went to that article and all of the things that John said about Johnny Ive were um, at, attributed to me. Yeah. Like and, and so the story is basically and the writer kind of admitted this that. A writer for Apple Insider on a very slow news week was half listening to the talk show to the point where he didn't even know who was who because I think he had a cold and he said his ears were a little bit plugged up. Oh no! And and decided <laughs> and decided guy. to make to decided to make a story about the seemingly authoritative. I heard that 
pronouncements from pundits pontificating and making speculation on a podcast and it, and sort of ginned up a story about it, which then he had to revise because it wasn't me who said that it was John. And then John sort of added in his layer, which was if you listen to the whole thing and this guy clearly wasn't paying super close attention to it, you get the context. But the danger of podcasting is if they do listen and they do write down what you say, they can take it out of context and then you have no control over your words. So, you know, it, it, that's the, you can, you can control all your words if you post it yourself, but it's easier for them to find. Um, if, if, if they take you out of context, uh, be, if they do find it, then you don't have that control. So it's yep. a problem. It's the internet. This is what happens. But, you know, the substance of it is that John and I were doing what everybody else was doing, like you said, which is speculating about what's Johnny Ives' involvement. He's got a new title. I, I made a lot of those same speculations, which is, does this mean he's more product-focused? Does this mean that his new title allows him to sort of step away and look big picture? And he's not he's not as deeply involved in individual products necessarily, but he is managing the people who are, and he's taken this sort of Steve Jobsian role as a product lead because Tim Cook is not somebody who seems to have that same kind of product sense. And it was all pretty reasonable, um, but uh, if you quote a certain part of what Grouper said, it sounds like his sources at Apple say that Ive isn't there. And what that seems to have done is shaken out of the tree some people at Apple who said to John, no, that's not true. He's as connected as ever. So who knows what the truth is, because, you know, there's also some kind of counter programming kind of happening there. But uh, but yeah, this is, it's a it's a, you know, what a... What a, what a story. This is a very 20, 21st century. It's a very 2016 kind of story where you've got podcasts and blogs and slow news weeks and yep. speculation about Apple and, you know, counter information being sort of spread after the fact. And I don't know. What a mess. Basically, the word from Apple now um, is still interesting to me, though, which is that Ive is focusing on bigger projects like architecture but that all design decisions go through him. And I said it's the word from Apple because that's that's what has somebody decided to share with John Gruber for John Gruber to share with the world. Yeah, but, and the, the way he phrases it is, Johnny Ive is as connected to product design as ever, which I I guess that that was one way to look at it, is, is Johnny's not connected to product design. I don't know. That was never really my number one theory. My theory was always that he's connected to product design, right? These people who are in charge of design at Apple work for him. I, I always figured he was connected. I just figured he was higher up, less involved day to day, working on some other stuff too. Not that he wasn't connected. And, and I guess what they're saying here is, look, he's not out the door. And, and connected is is, a, is an interesting choice of words because it means, well, it depends on how you want to read it. But my, my take is exactly that he is overseeing. He's not taking pen to paper on a daily basis as much anymore. That That's my the way that I look at this. And honestly, not surprising to me. Like, this makes perfect sense to me. Like, that he is more of an overseer now because he's not going to be around forever. And... Quite frankly, he's the the people that are underneath him. I can't. I can never remember their names. Yeah, I know. Um, the the, the two design officers. The, yeah. whether they have one on uh, hardware and one on software. Yeah. Um, they they are gonna be at least one of them will take his role one day, in theory. So he should Maybe. be kind of giving them a little bit more autonomy and just having the decisions float through him. 
Well, if he's Steve, if he's Steve Jobs now in terms of product taste to a certain degree, right? That that is not take it from me as somebody in a much smaller scale and different industry. But when you get more responsibility, you can't do your old job anymore. Like you can't. No. So if Johnny Ive has been elevated when he got promoted to this other level, of course he's not going to be as involved with the details. How can he be? Plus, you're right. What you're doing is bringing in your lieutenants and, and they're learning to do your old job or, or you know, one of them is kind of a new job, which is the software design, which kind of didn't exist before, I think, uh, before sort of Forstall left. Uh, but you've got software design and hardware design, and then you've got Johnny Ive in this new role above them. So, of course, he's less involved. But, uh, you know, the other way to look at that is that he's still working hard on, you know, and is incredibly important at Apple. He's just taking on this kind of like senior figure Mm -hmm. who is talking about product directions in videos in the white room and is managing the kind of product process with uh, balancing design and uh, the realities of engineering and all of those things. Now, and, and again, you know, when we talk about Apple, I have to say this. I'm not necessarily saying he's doing a great job at that or that all of Apple's products are fantastic. That's not what I'm saying. But I can understand that as a role, that they need you need somebody to do that, especially if you're, as we'll probably talk about later today, if you're structured like Apple is structured, which was a structure built by Steve Jobs. You do sort of need some people to say, right, to say this is the kind of, you know, product we want to build. And is in... It wasn't engineers, right? It was sort of Steve who did that mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. in collaboration, but he was like a decider and had good taste and good product sense. And I think everybody would admit that that he was the one who did that. Nobody's going to be Steve anymore, but perhaps that's now Johnny Ives' role. Final sign off. Frankly, you know that that's what he does. He's final sign off for product design. Yeah, and setting and setting direction and yeah. checking in with his, with yep. his lieutenants and saying and saying I like that. He probably calls them lieutenants, by the way, because of course, because um, naturally, alu, alu, aluminium. Mm-hmm. Sir Johnny Ive, indeed, indeed, he's got a sword somewhere, probably. probably. Um, so he uh, he's checking in with them and saying I don't, you know, he's setting the direction. He's checking in. He's going to right, but but it's not the same as being down in the down in the trenches with those things every day because it's literally impossible for him to do that because he's got too much that he's responsible for so you know that that, that I, I suspect that 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 seems reasonable to me not knowing anything about what actually goes on inside Apple because again I do not talk to any little birdies really just the whole thing for me was it was just funny it was just funny to see it's like how, how much stuff is said on podcasts every week I know, right? But it only uh, well, ever I mean, seems to be John that finds himself in this mess. Well, Marco, yeah, right, because Marco will write things. I mean, I think he doesn't anymore, but Marco would write things on his blog and people yep. would freak out about it and be on CNBC and all that. But that's the thing is, you know, not to not to belabor this, but it's about laziness in the media, right? Like it's, it's yep. too hard to listen to podcasts and, and scrape them for clickbait. It's too hard. So mostly it doesn't happen. And there isn't anything to really link to as well. Like, you can't link right. to the text. Right. I mean, although clickbait doesn't care necessarily sure. if you if you can link. But yeah, it's more work because you have to transcribe it. It's hard. It's harder to do that. John 
gets listened to by a lot of people and a lot of influential people and uh, and is perceived as having uh, a level of knowledge and access that allows that you know that that makes it a little bit more even then though I feel like if there was if it wasn't Thanksgiving week and there was more news going on that probably wouldn't have been a story but um you know but it, it it's true Marco can say things that are far more incendiary on ATP that don't get the coverage that something that he he writes on marco.org will get because it's a lot more work mm-hmm. to hear him say those things on ATP. Well, it's like this whole thing about the all glass all glass iPhone no home button 10th anniversary. That started on the talk show. That whole rumor started with Gruber in May. Huh. And then it got reported on and now it's considered fact. But my <laughs> memory tells me and I did some googling and yeah, I've got something in May. That was I'm sure that was the first time that that was mentioned. And now it's like everyone's expecting his 10th anniversary iPhone because Well, this is this is what comes up when you're influential like John is. Yeah. I mean, John I know, I gotta say, and I, I love talking on the talk show, and I, I feel like it lets me reach people that I who don't know who I am and that I never hear me. I always love your episodes. They're always some of my favorite and ones. And it's fun to talk to John. I don't get to talk to John a lot, and so it's also just like me and John mm-hmm. shooting the breeze a little yep. bit. It's great. It's great. Because I, I, when I see him at events, I get to talk to him for five minutes, and then we have to go into the event, and, and that's it. So it's I, I always enjoy cho- my conversations with John. Uh, that all said... Every, I, I imagine this happens to him constantly, but for me, I just get a window into it. Every time I'm on the talk show for the next week, I will get weird emails, Twitter mentions, yeah. posts referencing me because people have their eye on that. And, yep. and it's, it's a different audience. And, you know, I'll get some of that for Twit too, but for John's, there is, there is scrutiny. There is hate listening. It is amazing. It is a different world. I feel bad for him because, like, I just hope it doesn't discourage him from sharing his thoughts on a talk show. Like, that's my favorite way to consume content from John Gruber because it's like, it's relaxed and he's just talking. You know, that's how yeah. I like it. I mean, because that, you know, podcasting is just my favorite thing anyway. But just like in the link post that he wrote where he kind of clarifies some stuff, it just, you know, it just is like his opening thing is like, this is what I just like most about podcasting. And that just kind of makes me sad a little bit, you know? Yeah, and his footnote was sad too because he's like, uh, you know, when I started seeing these stories, I was appalled. It felt like a punch to the gut. It wasn't yeah. what I meant to con- convey. And I realized because I've how been influ- there, you know, like, word is. not with yeah. this stuff, but like with just other stuff. Like, will you just say something? And people, and, and it's taken in a way because it's you're just kind of just riffing, and you upset yeah. someone, and you never meant to, and, and that's that's yeah. something it makes me. And, and that's the problem with a, a medium like this is, you know, if you take it out of context, if you you don't listen to every episode, or you don't listen to that episode, you just jump to a time code. People will hear you say something, and you know what? It is a rough draft. It is something that our thoughts are evolving about. Like yep. when I write a story. I am considering it and making, I'm considering every word, but we don't write scripts here. This is not, no. good Lord, this is not scripted, right? We have an outline, right? Like the, the sure. things we want to get to. But then we just have a conversation. Yeah, because as we're talking very frequently, I will, and you will, I'm sure as well, like I have a new idea or I have a new take on it, something that I wasn't Absolutely. previously expecting before, because as we're talking, like synapses are firing and we have the chat room giving us pointers and stuff. And so it evolves as it goes along. Um, and I think that's what makes podcasting so amazing. Um, but it can also open someone up to scrutiny if if they're looked at in certain ways. Yeah, I hope that they. I hope that nobody starts scrutinizing us. <laughs> Look away! That British guy said something really bad about Johnny Ive. How dare he? 
Mm. How dare This week's episode is also brought to you by our friends over at Encapsula. Encapsula is a cloud service that makes your website faster and safer. They have a worldwide network that can inspect every packet that comes and goes from your website, blocking attacks against your site whilst also delivering your content to your customers faster. They have a global network of 30 data centers with two terabits of bandwidth at hand. This network sits between your servers and your customers and routes and filters traffic. It stops attack traffic by scraping bots and making sure denial-of-service attacks never make it to your servers, whilst caching your content and optimizing connections using their powerful CDN so your users get your content lightning fast. They have custom software and servers and 24-7 operations teams at hand always to keep everything running nice and smoothly. As a listener of this show, you can get one whole month of service for free. All you need to do is go to encapsula.com slash upgrade. That's I-N-C-A-P-S-U-L-A dot com slash upgrade. You'll find out more here about Encapsula's offerings and also claim your free month at that URL. Thank you so much to Encapsula for their support of this show and Relay FM. So there was this really interesting article over at Vox this week, and it's um, start of a, I think it's um, a, a whole series of posts that they're working on that I think Vox are calling New Money. And they, wow. they started this by looking at Apple's corporate structure and how it could potentially be affecting their product lines, which is perfect for right now because everybody is concerned about Apple's product lines, um, especially the Mac and what's going on there. And this is quite complex I want to try and distill it down if I can for our, for our listeners Jason and then we can maybe okay. we can talk about it as we go along. So sure. the question the question is this. If Apple is the most valuable company in the world, why can't they make everything? And so this is this is a really good I like thought, right? They have this much money, why can they not make everything? Why can they not just employ people? And just make everything and it not be a problem. And there's a couple of companies that are not as valuable as Apple that have much broader offerings, right? So if you look at someone like Samsung, who make all consumer products. Yes, everything. And uh, the Vox article picks out GE, right? Who build jet engines, tidal energy farms, freight rail, data systems, mining equipment, medical devices, right? Sure. Like the list goes Light on balls. and on and on. Mm-hmm. So why can't Apple do this like why is the mac falling behind why is the mac pro not been updated in over a thousand days like why are some products dying on the vine and apparently this answer is found in the corporate structure that apple chooses to employ and there is two different types so most big companies a company like ge they run on a divisional system so this is where different parts of a company are kind of broken up and run slightly independently so they will have all of the people the resources and control that they need in their column of the organization to get everything done and only the people right at the very top talk to the ceo as a way to help steer the ship but they're relatively autonomous in their being right so there is like for example we've heard this many times right you talk about samsung samsung are a great way like for, for me to try and help explain this so samsung have samsung the phone division and then they also have like the chip fabrication division and the chip fabrication division sell chips to apple mm-hmm. but have nothing but like it, it even though samsung phone and apple are at loggerheads all the time samsung chip company don't care because that apple's their customer 
So they're completely separated in that way. And then there's people right at the very top who help steer the company. It's all Samsung, but they have kind of their own columns of power. This is a divisional system. Right. Apple is structured in what's known as a functional system. So a good way to look at this is if you go to Apple, and this is from, I'm kind of cribbing this from the Vox article. It's a fantastic article. There'll be a link yeah, in the med- show notes. Medical you really, really, really should read it. it. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. I learned a lot. So, for example, if you look at Apple's corporate structure, at least what they show you on their page, there's no vice president of iPhone. There's no vice president of Mac. They have senior vice presidents of hardware, technology, and hardware engineering. So functional structures are mainly used as a way to foster collaboration. They don't split things up into product lines. They have everybody under the same individual across product lines. So, for example, you would have software and hardware like I can't think of a good word to explain it, but like there'll be somebody who runs software and hardware and that software and hardware teams are split across products. So the same person who manages software for iPhone will also manage software for the Mac. So this is done as a way to kind of to help people work together. And it is argued that because uh, Apple run like this, they have cross device features, things like continuity and handoff and stuff. They're possible because Apple is made up of teams that work closely together. Am I doing okay so far, Jason? Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think you've got it. This is this is uh, the way Matt Iglesias puts it in the Vox article. It's very much it's structured like a startup. In that, uh, when you are a small company, what you do is you have the people who make the product, mm-hmm. and that's right. And and they're they're structured based on what you do to make the product. And Apple is structured like that, even though it's a huge company in terms of revenue and has a lot of employees, although we have to keep in mind that the the core who make the products is a much smaller part of Apple's business when you see a total number of employees and includes the 30,000 retail employees. There's a lot of support employees that, you know, there, there's, there, uh, it's a smaller core, but that's how they're structured mm-hmm. is there's an operating system group, right? And there, you know, the people who build the operating systems build the operating systems and the, you know, the software is software and hardware is hardware. It's not, as you put it, that there's a Mac division that is off in a building somewhere and that's all they do is the Mac. That's not, that's not how Apple is structured. Microsoft is another good example of a counter. So Microsoft have vice presidents who run lines of business like office devices, servers, that kind of thing. So these people all have their own software engineers that work in their teams, but they don't have somebody who's the vice president of software engineering. Like it's more siloed. You know, like the office team and the devices team, they have software and hardware engineers right where they need them, but they don't have these like cross like device or cross product line teams. It's more siloed and apparently this is better for accountability. Like if something goes wrong with Office, it falls on the VP of Office because it's clear. If something goes wrong with iWork, who is ultimately responsible for that? Is it right. Craig Federighi? It seems a bit weird, <laughs> but it's software. Uh, Microsoft also is an interesting example because at the very end of his tenure, Steve Ballmer reorged Microsoft to be more like Apple and functionally organized. And I believe then Satya Nadella came in and Said organized no. it back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was one of his first things. He did a complete reorganization to do it this way. But like the good question, so this is the good question of this, right? Who is responsible ultimately inside of Apple for the fact that the Mac Pro has not been updated in 1,000 days? Yep. 
I can't answer it, that question. It, it's well, and the answer is it's somebody who is also in charge of making sure that the iPhone and iPad and everything else ship, right? Right. So then how are you going to argue, right? How do you argue with that person? This actually is, it's funny, this, we, I'm reminded of a, a, a conversation we had about the iPad, where we said, um, if there was a CEO of iPad Incorporated, they would have been fired. And um, th- this is the thing, right? There is no CEO of iPad Incorporated. <laughs> that, that doesn't exist. There's no, as far as we know, there's no iPad product manager, right? Like, well, maybe there's a product marketing manager, but is there like a person who's got the business control and the budget line and all of that for the iPad and decides where iPad resources are spent? I don't think so. I, so I would assume that there is someone who is pseudo in that role. The speaker for the iPad. Yes. Or the Mac, right? Their boss also looks after iPhone. Right. And it's like, how do you argue? Like, if you need resourcing, <laughs> you know, how do you argue with a Dan Riccio, who's the hardware engineering guy, or Johnny, I think it's Suruji, who is the hardware technologies person? How do you go to them and be like, I need some more budget for the Mac Pro? And they go, well, I mean, well, I, I, there's a new iPhone like coming. The- it seems like the way that the Apple uh, stuff works is that people get retasked, right? So there there aren't people... My understanding is that there are lots of people who, like, you work on this project and then you go work on that project. Mm-hmm. And some of those things happen where if you are the person who loves the iPad, it seems like, you know, if you, you know, you get what resources you get. And if those people are working on the iPhone, it's like, all right, that's... But, you know, but even then, it's not like there are, as far as I can tell, iPad OS people, right? Mm-hmm. They're iOS people, and it's but budget is a is a is a word that we're using. But I'm thinking more of like a time and attention budget as opposed to a financial yeah. budget. Yeah. So one of the things that is interesting to me when I was thinking about this, like just just thinking about my own memories of Apple and how Apple's run over the time that I've been interested in them, and you kind of alluded to this earlier. Tim Cook has only seemed to move Apple further towards a functional structure. Like after Forstall left, he consolidated roles even further, didn't he? Like yeah. he, he took positions away and moved them under key individuals. And also, uh, you know, it seems like he's maybe doing more than that. Remember we were talking about the idea of um, all of the internet services teams coming together and then they will all kind of sit in one organization, maybe in one right. building. right. But it all still comes under like Eddie Q, who looks after all internet software and services, which includes the App Store and includes iBooks, right? So well, right. And, iBooks. and some, of the, I, I think that some of that is more easily. So okay, so here's the thing: this is this approach is part of Steve Jobs's secret sauce about like how Apple gets stuff done, right? I, I think I think Jobs felt very strongly that you need these cross-functional teams. A lot of Apple's strengths were about kind of combining things in new ways. And that is that is part of the the, the corporate culture, you know, that that something like Apple University probably reinforces in all of the hires and, and existing employees. So that's that's the challenge here is um is Apple able to split things off or if they split things off do they lose something that makes them fundamentally apple-y i think the services are is a really good question where 
I could see how you know services as its own thing with its own you know line in the in the financial reports now and some very clear products could be broken up into smaller teams but even then you know there's this argument that like there's one Apple ID and a lot of our criticisms about this stuff are like why do I need to keep putting in my password in different places why does my iphone not know that when i lo- i just logged in here but now i'm trying to buy an app and i need to log in again right and some of that is because some of this stuff got built up separately and it like it needs to be more integrated not less integrated so this is the challenge with every single thing is is that something we can really do on our own and um for a new product like are we limiting what we can create as a new product because we've got it in a silo as opposed mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. using our knowledge from like the iPad was created because they had the knowledge of the operating system from the iPhone and the and the hardware too like it was it sprung out of the iPhone a lot of the Mac stuff that happens is based on work that also went in to iOS the car project just to throw out one example right the car project you would think would benefit from Apple's base. Now, maybe this isn't true, and maybe that's how it got reorged, but you would think that Apple's base of knowledge, especially on the operating system side, would be useful to some degree with the car project. So how do you do? You risk uh, harming that other product by separating it from the, the, the core base of knowledge. Um, on the other hand, if it's a small product like an Apple TV or something like that, it only exists because they've got that iOS base to, to use on it and previously a Mac base, but they had a base from another product. Does that product suffer because it's small and not high priority? Uh, yeah, maybe. But does that product also exist because it's connected to the base of those other products. Also, yeah, yes, it does. So it's a really difficult problem um, when you scale, right? And that, that I think, is the base of a lot of this, is the reason that we talk about startups behaving this way is because they're more manageable. Because I will tell you, if you're managing five people working on one thing, it's a lot different than if you're managing 30 people working on five things or six things. Yeah. It's just not, you know, and this is the the people have written books about it. Like as you scale, things change. You can't just say, hey, we we are making one great product with five people now make six great products with 30 people. It's like that kind of doesn't work. So there's two there's two courses here, right, for Apple from now forward. They either stay on this course. They continue with their functional structure. They create a further more like increasingly increasingly cohesive product line due to their collaboration but they only focus on the most popular products because of that because that's the way that you can be most effective here right you have to shrink the line to be able to actually affect the most change or do they now move to a divisional system in the attempt to maximize all lines individually at the expense of potential collaboration and cohesion honestly i think i prefer the sound of option one and there's just going to be some things that meet the chopping block. This is this is it's a funny thing because um, we're in a moment where people are criticizing a lot of the decisions Apple is making, and so the idea of change sounds appealing. But I feel like if Apple went to a more divisional system, everybody the outcome of that would be that everybody would be screaming that Apple has completely lost the things that make it Apple. I think that under under their current system, some people lose, right? 
and and sure. I think that it's the people on the the edges are going to lose a little bit, and we're seeing that right that the real pro machines that people are losing. But on the the idea of of them kind of moving to a more divisional, less collaborative uh, function, a less collaborative system, I think everybody loses. Honestly, I think we lose what makes Apple products Apple products. So I, the, what I try to do is imagine if the Mac would be better out on its own if they just created a Mac division or spun off, you know, Mac Incorporated or whatever. Yep. Um, I'll we'll link to uh, Adam Eggs wrote a piece on Tidbits about sort of where the where where the Mac fits and the way he says it, which I think is an interesting way of thinking it is that. Uh, the Mac is an iPhone accessory, <laughs> in a way. Aww. Like it's it's the computer. It's the computer that works best with your iPhone, and and Mac users may be really offended by that, but there are way more iPhone users than there are Mac users. So viewed through that lens, what Apple's saying is our best way to keep Mac sales high is to make it the best friend to your iPhone and work like your iPhone. And so if you've got an iPhone, why would you buy a PC? You're better off buying a Mac. But if you if you think about it, I mean, it is true. Apple definitely thinks that. Um, you could argue that if you had the Mac go its own way and not care about being the best iPhone companion it could be, that the result would be that it would do what the rest of the PC industry does, which is just keep shrinking. Like that maybe the reason the Mac is floating when the rest of the PCs are shrinking is because Apple has chosen to tie it very closely with this incredibly successful smartphone product that Apple sells. I also start to think like if you had that separate Mac division, you know, going back to uh, like Samsung examples and things like that, does it make, does that division make decisions that are bad for Apple as a whole, but might increase Mac sales. Where you see that's like, why did they do that? And the answer is because they don't care what happens in the rest of Apple. What if they? What if they said, well, now we're going to make a touchscreen Mac because we don't care about the iPad anymore. We're just going to we're just going to do that. And we're going to. Would that be good? Would that be bad? Um, and I feel like the real truth here is. Mac Mac on its own, you lose access or or you know, to some or all of a degree, access to the core OS development. There's core OS shared among all these devices. What about chip development? People talk about like ARM on on the, the Mac, but the chip development, you know, are they going to, is the Mac division going to develop chips on their own? That's not going to happen. So you can throw that out the window. Would would Touch Bar have happened, which has got you know, huge amounts of learning and actual operating system from iOS, stuff like that. Um, in a Mac context wouldn't exist anymore. Without all of that stuff, what is the Mac in a, in a Mac division like that other than another PC maker doing what the PC makers do, which is probably putting more current Intel processors in their computers and otherwise kind of not doing a whole lot um, with a... with a. I just... And, and I don't think that that would ever happen. But I'm just saying, if you start to walk through it, it's like, this is why Apple doesn't do this. And this is why the, as a Mac user, the way Apple has treated the Mac is frustrating and yet still is probably the right choice. <laughs> I And I'm not defending specific, they've screwed up a lot of things with the Mac this year. <laughs> but I don't think the Mac is a better product if it's siloed off from the you know the world's most single you know the world's most popular single consumer product yep. or electronics product the iPhone right I I don't I don't think that severing those connections and making the Mac uh, live on its own 
is worth it. And you can say, well, we won't sever them. We'll just we'll just create more responsibility. It's like, I don't think it works that way. I don't think you can, you know, section off part of the bowl of soup. It's soup. It all just mixes around. So I don't know. It's a business school problem that is interesting. And I'm sure the people at Apple and, and the business school people who run Apple University inside Apple right, have talked about it a lot. But I do believe that Apple thinks this is fundamentally part of what they do. It's also a huge challenge, right? Because it does mean that Apple kind of can't walk and chew gum at the same time. That's an overstatement of it. But it means that it that Apple requires more focus and that Apple has to do a lot of process switching to keep these all these products going. And it makes you wonder, are they doing things internally to try and keep their their uh, functional structure while also allowing them to do you know be more multi-threaded mm-hmm. and i'm mm-hmm. sure they're trying that because this is this is the challenge is how do you scale this thing that's fundamentally apple because i think it's the reason why apple isn't something like samsung or ge is because at its heart, and I think a lot of us have been saying this for a long time, as big as Apple is in terms of its value because of the products they sell and how huge its supply chain is, if you look at the people who make the products in Cupertino, it's still run like a fairly small company. It, it really kind of is. And I know that's hard to grasp. And so when they do something like the report about killing the airport and I say, well, I can kind of understand it because they, you know, they want to, they want to focus. People are like, what do you mean? They got all the money. Why do they need to focus? It's like, well, this is why, because they're not really made (laughs) on on a large scale. Again, there are lots of exceptions, I'm sure, but on a large scale, this is, I think, part of the, the, the magic of Apple and the secret sauce that goes into Apple making these kind of products. This is their playbook. It's really hard to um, to do that and then just say, well, what if we triple the number of people who are working on everything? Then we can do more products. Like, I'm not sure that actually works. There is one thing that, that could be improved quite significantly by Apple kind of changing uh, to a more divisional structure is we could see new people in the in the vice president roles. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I would love, don't get me wrong, I would love high visibility people who are the spokespeople for products, right? Because it seems like that there are a lot of women in important roles inside of Apple, because they've been changing kind of who presents, you know, like they're bringing more product managers onto stage to, to like talk about Apple Pay and stuff like that. So it seems like that there are women at the top there, but they're not on the current SVP thing, right? The way it's structured right now. So if they will move more divisional, then we may see more of those women get more important roles inside of Apple, which would be a good thing. Yeah, there there are some product marketing positions that are tied to product lines. Yeah. But and I think that's how Apple does structure it. So you've got spokespeople who are out there like yeah. Greg Joswiak is uh, is vice president of iPod, iPhone and iOS product marketing, right? So mm-hmm. he's the he's the iPhone guy basically right but it's product marketing it's being a spokesperson and and an advocate for your product that's not quite the same right and there's and is there a person who is like the mac person actually you know apple pr is structured that way i know who the guy is who does mac pr like i know that guy and he's a good guy and i talk to him all the time and like that is structured that way like pr people are tasked with with products, but but it would be great. And again, this is me saying it would be great for me as an observer and somebody who writes about this stuff and uses this stuff, not necessarily what's right for Apple. I want to be clear about that too, but it would be great to have a person you can point to and say, 
that's the Mac person. Like, right? That's the iPad person. That's the person I, even if they were more of an evangelist or a product marketing manager, we talk about Sal Segoian, right? It's like, he was the Apple script guy. He was the automator guy, right? There is some value in these big products of being able to point to somebody. And, and I'm not saying that Phil Schiller doesn't do a good job expressing, the, you know, what Apple needs to express. But it, it, I do feel like I would love to hear from somebody who's like, no, no, no. I am the person who cares about the Mac every day at Apple and make sure that the Mac gets what it deserves, right? And I don't think we have that, right? And if you ask Phil Schiller, that's probably part of his job too, right? But in the end, it's, you know, it's not just his job. It's part of his job. And if you ask him about the Mac, he may say, we love the Mac. But on another day, he'll say, but, you know, look at what is great on the iPhone because he's got a lot of roles. And that's, you know, so yes, I would love a figure out there. Maybe this is the advantage of having the old the old evangelist program, right? Like, with, or or you could think of it as a product marketing person if you'd like. But it's like, who is the who is the person who who helps represent that product line on stage and yeah. in interviews and is the like the Mac Maven, right? That might help us, but I don't think it helps any problems inside of Apple. Like, if there was a Mac spokesperson, it doesn't mean that the Mac Pro gets updated faster, right? Like, that is like a, a, a marketing decision. Right. It depends on if they're just a spokesperson or if they're somebody who is... Um, Responsible. Because the, quest- the other question about this is communication, right? If that spokesperson has the ability to communicate and maybe even has some influence, then there could be some interesting sort of like maybe there's better awareness inside of Apple if they're not aware. Or maybe Apple's able to express what they're doing mm-hmm. that would require them to want to express it. And that's the question. Do they yeah. really want to express yeah. it? But they could do that. But you're right. I mean, it may it, it's something that we would like to see. I'm not sure it's something that makes sense for Apple to do it. But wouldn't it be great if you did have somebody who could be like, oh, that's the person. They tell us what's going on with the Mac. They're the first one out there when there's something going on with the Mac. And, you know, right now, it's, it's a again, it's a functional thing. I mean, that's Phil Schiller's job. And so Phil Schiller will come out and talk about what's going on and, and when, it's, when it's a Mac issue. And that's, that's uh, you're right. That's more about communication than about behind the scenes. But I, I suspect it's happening behind the scenes, too. I don't know. You cannot ignore that if this is the way Apple was run, or it's like any co- any company, you know, it doesn't. There's a part of me that's like it doesn't even matter if it's divisional. iPhone's always going to be king. Well, I, I mean, the idea would be that you would take your 13 percent of the company's focus and you know and go somewhere yeah. with it, yeah, and build the product. That's the that's the dream. Is like the the Mac and the iPad take their thirteen percent cut of revenue and they build a budget because that's realistically that's part of this too. Is they get a profit and loss based on the Mac, and the goal is to make a profit on the Mac, and that would make changes, right? I mean, you could also argue that that Apple manages those products now as part of this kind of larger ecosystem. It's a little bit different when you get to spend your little cut of what you make and return a profit and would those decisions be distorted but that's the dream anyway is that they get to go off and pay their people and make the decisions that only matter to the mac and uh and that may even contradict what apple does or they get told well yeah you can't even though you want to make that decision we're not going to let you because that's going to interfere with our decisions so it's it would be complicated is that would that even be a better scenario let's look at our ipad right you know, as you said before, the head of iPad would have been fired. So 
is the fact that Apple was run this way good for the iPad because it's like a halo oh, device so. for the iPhone? Like, would the iPad get as much focus as it's been getting, and hopefully, it will continue to get next year if it was if Apple was instructed this way? Because would the iPad have just been killed? Apple's a long game with the iPad, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Tim Cook says I think that ultimately the iPad is the future of this stuff, right? I mean, that that is not a product that is that has been doing well for a long time now, but Apple believes in it. And if you were in charge of the P&L for for the iPad, yeah, you would be you would you would either need a lot of patience or you would be in trouble. And you know, and it goes to that person then starts to make decisions that are based on um what they need to do for their P&L and for their job to stay and not necessarily for the long-term focus or um, of Apple, right? And that's, mm-hmm. the, that's again, a downside of having those divisions. As somebody who worked at a company with lots of divisions, right, we would make decisions that were completely in opposition to what other groups were making because they were the right decisions for us. And yep. as our, our divisions got, we actually, IDG became less and less divisional as I worked there. And with every change came more overhead and mm-hmm. it made it in many ways harder to do our jobs and harder to do a good product because we now were part of this larger entity. And so, it, you know, it, 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 it's just different. It's not necessarily fundamentally better, but I do think it's fundamentally apple the way it's structured around uh, functions. I do think that is like an Apple thing. And that if Apple made something off in a silo, would it really be Apple-y? Plus, we haven't even talked about the human beings here so much. But, you know, if you're somebody who's an OS engineer you and you're working on stuff that's Mac and iOS and things that are going to be core OS stuff that's going to work in both places or something that came from iOS and now you're going to put it on the Mac, that's a, that's a much cooler job than being told you're going to work in the Mac division you get 13% of the budget. You've got this small audience. They love you. I hope you like it. But a lot of engineers on a career path who are the the best engineers, the hottest engineers, they would view that as being um, exiled. So one of the advantages in terms of people of keeping pe- keeping these groups large is that you're all rowing in the same direction for Apple and you work on different projects instead of being kind of put in Siberia, uh, which would lead probably to... And again, not necessarily, but I'm, I'm going to say a, a Mac division on its own probably would not have the highest rising stars of Apple running it mm-hmm. because it's a legacy division without a lot of growth that's perceived that that is an old it's an old code older code base and it's a it's a you know it's an an older and not growing user base. And so, you know, they might have good engineers over there, but it would certainly be the kind of place that would be not perceived as being like the place to be if you're an up and coming uh, developer at Apple, engineer at Apple. And that, that would be a problem, too, I think, for a platform like that. Great article. A Vox uh, really taught me some stuff. So go check it out. Time for some Ask Upgrade, Jason. Sounds like it. Who is supporting Ask Upgrade this week? I'm very excited to tell you that Ask Upgrade this week is being brought to us by MailRoute. MailRoute. That's right. Now, who should handle email security and delivery for you? The answer is the people who do only that, and that is MailRoute. All the big companies are bowing out of the email protection business. It's hard work, and we just talked about focus. We just talked about doing what you're great at and not worrying about the stuff that you're not that's not core to your business. Well, guess what? There are a lot of companies that thought email protection was a nice add-on 
And it's actually so hard that maybe it's worth not doing it. Postini went away, McAfee and MX Logic. Google came out and said if you want to, that they want you to use a gateway service like MailRoute so that they don't have to filter all your mail for Google Apps. Who can you trust to do the job properly? The answer is MailRoute, a team that has been focused entirely on this, just on email security, since 1997. It's a very long time ago. They've been doing this. This is what they do. MailRoute protects your email against uh, spam. Viruses and other threats, it protects your mail server, and they deliver your mail even when your mail server can't. There's no hardware or software to install. It lives in the cloud. If you own your domain, that's all you need to use MailRoute. Their interface is easy to navigate. It's located with, uh, or it's loaded with administrative tools, including an API. It's all designed to make your life better. There's no spam. There are no viruses, and you have no bounced mail putting a load on your email server. MailRoute takes the bullet for you. They'll protect your email from all of those things and will guarantee mail access during outages. That's one of the nice things about having MailRoute between you and the internet is if something happens to your server, MailRoute's still collecting your mail and you can even go there and check it if you need to. They do it better and have been doing it longer than anyone else. They have lots of great features that I'm not going to get into here, but I am going to mention that in addition to that great API I talked about earlier, they do offer mailbagging. Mailbagging! Stop spam today. Sign up for a 30-day trial at mailroute.net slash upgrade and listeners to upgrade all upgradians out there. You'll get 10% off for the lifetime of your account. Mailroute.net slash upgrade. Thank you to MailRoute for the support of this show and all of Relay FM. And thank you, Mike. If you have missed me creatively saying mailbagging, go sign up for MailRoute. The more people sign yeah. up for MailRoute, the more times I get to say mailbagging. I think <laughs> that's simple true. As that. It's pretty simple. That was good. You had a lot of pent-up uh, mailbagging oh, energy there. It was ready. I, I, I did go into sheer panic when I realized I wasn't sure how I was going to do it. So Yeah. that was. I, I appreciate your enthusiasm. Time for Ask Upgrade. Brent asked, Exporting MP3 for podcasts, shall I use 64K, 96K, or something else? Jason, what is what on earth is Brent talking about with all these codes? Uh, it's a great question, Brandt. Um, the uh, search here. Let's see. Uh, let me. Let me. I'm going to back up. Um, <laughs> the uh, MP3s are encoded at a bit rate, so yep. the lower the bit rate, the lower the quality, but the smaller the file size. And mm-hmm. so it used to be. I was listening to a podcast. I was listening to an incomparable um, from 2011, and it sounds terrible. And yep. it's it, it was encoded at a very low bit rate, and. Um, so these days, people have more bandwidth, although, you know, you've got metering and, and people on smartphones downloading on cellular, and there are lots of other issues. So the question is, a common one, what do you do? I would say I used to do everything at 64 kbps uh, mono. Mm-hmm. I still do a lot at that, but I uh, Marco Arment sort of encouraged me to try encoding things more at 96 kbps stereo, because when you've got stereo stuff... It sound, it's in stereo, and when you don't, um, it uses that bit rate for your audio quality, and your audio quality is good. So, uh, And it's not that much bigger. It is bigger file size. So I would say you know, most of the shows I do are either 64K mono or 96K stereo. Mike, what about relay shows? It varies across the map. Uh, however, people encode their own shows. You know, most of our uh, shows are edited by their hosts. Uh, I have always recommended 96 kilobits a second mono as a minimum. Um, I used to do 64. 
uh, but I think that 96 is a lot better sounding. However, I have changed what I am encoding recently because I don't know what it was, but I was just listening to some of my shows recently and I'm like, I don't like how they sound. Like, it doesn't sound like how it sounds to me when I edit them because uh-huh. the quality is lower. So I have recently been encoding at 128 stereo. What? Wow. Including our show, and nobody yeah. said anything. So I'm going to keep doing it because I think it sounds vastly better and they're right. not that much bigger. So like, for example, today I published an episode of Cortex. It is an hour and 40 minutes long and it's 95 megabits. Megabytes. Yeah. Yeah. Right, that's fine. It's fine. Yeah. I think. Uh, I, th- you know, people download over Wi-Fi these days. If they're they're on LTE, the bandwidth caps are larger. Um, I think that that is is mostly fine, to be honest. No, but I have been doing this for months, and nobody said anything. All right, so interesting. I'm yeah, keep doing it. I, I don't think people even know. Yeah, I would say right now, ninety six K stereo is my standard. Yeah, I would say um, go with that as a minimum. If you've gotten weird like me, you should go up to 128. I would say right now to not go any more than that, um, but that's where I'm sitting. This is the first time I've said that I'm doing right. this. So I'm going to keep doing it. If anybody tells me, if anybody complains now after listening to this episode, your complaint is invalid because you didn't know, <laughs> right? I will not the, take your complaint. The uh, I should say one of the fun things about MP3 is when you switch to stereo, it... it ch- you know, it, it basically only uses the stereo when it's when Needed. it detects a stereo yep. signal. Otherwise, it encodes it all as uh, as mono when it's mono. So it's not it's not doubling nope. the file size for something that's in mono just because you said it was in stereo. Exactly. So that's why right. I can do stereo because, and that's why the file sizes stay smaller. Um, and I love what Zach W said in the chat room. Can confirm, didn't notice a change. So whatever makes you happy, Mike. <laughs> and it does, because I think the shows sound better. They sound truer to how we actually sound at 128 than at 96. And and I really, it, it doesn't seem to be making a massive difference. So I did it. All right. There you go. Surprise. Makes the makes the music sound better. It does. It makes everything sound better. It makes me and you sound right. better. Yay. So much compression happens to these um yeah, anyway. Mark I said, think I sound fine, Mike. I think exactly. I just, it's great. Hello. Mark's question here. Yeah. Mark's question right. is... Choo-choo-choo! Ask a friend! Do you think the opening of Apple Campus 2 has anything to do with Apple's refocus, for example, killing monitors and airports? Great question. And I think uh, this this lends into... I, I kind of... The, the train of thought that I think Mark has... And a couple of people asked this question this week, which is quite interesting to me. The idea of, like, bringing these teams together, putting them together, working out kind of who's going to go where. Is this a time when Apple's sitting down and being like, ah, we're going to have to move... It's, it's like me moving house right now. We have to move this stuff. Is it worth it? I, I feel like I'm Tim Cook right now, you know, in, in my house move. <laughs> I'm moving from Office 1 to Office 2. Do I really want to take this monitor or can I really get by without it? I think that there might be a little bit of this going on, which is why they may be killing off some of this stuff now. They're taking stock of what they've got, what they have to move, and who's going to continue. And maybe they are, uh, maybe they're getting rid of it. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think that it only has something to do with it in the sense that it might be an impetus like, do this now. We don't want to move these people if we're going to reorg or get rid of them. And so let's, you know, make these decisions now because the last thing you want to do is say these engineers that were in the wireless team are now in the Apple TV team and we're going to have them work on that and they're going to be over here and then say, oh, uh, 
we don't have space for them there because we just moved in and we didn't right i mean that that I, I so i think space planning space planning is something that it gives you a deadline it maybe makes you focus and make a decision that you've been putting off uh that's but i'd say that's got to be it, right? I mean, what's not happening is Apple's like, oh man, AppleScript. I don't know if I've got any chairs for them. Let's just get rid of AppleScript. I got no no desks are available for AppleScript. That's not happening. It it it, it may be, if it's anything, it may be just you know setting a deadline of like if we're going to make changes, let's make them now so that we can you know move people uh, with those changes already factored in. David asked. No need for to, for Apple to make a Wi-Fi router specifically, right? Like David thinks it's like whatever, like we did. We were kind of just like okay, but what about something like Time Machine? Is that gonna is that gonna be impacted by this? Now the Time Capsule, which is Apple's hardware product, which does Time Machine over Wi-Fi, I expect that that will go away, right? But Time Machine itself, the backup system. I assume that that is completely unconnected to that team, and it's a it's a Mac thing. Yeah. Yep. And uh, there are ways, like there are NAS um, devices that support Time Machine now. Apple has a spec for Time Machine over SMB as well as over AFP. Um, I think there's a, some questions about the op- a lot of the NAS devices. Sorry for using all these terms, but this is you know NAS is a Network, network attached, attached storage. storage. It's it's it, that that's a, effectively that's what time capsule is, yep. which is it's a it's a it's a storage device on that's networked instead of being a computer. It is a computer, but you don't see it as that, and it just sits on your network. A, a lot of the makers of those they're using like open source stuff that is not necessarily totally um, what Apple wants to see. But I think that Apple getting out of this market will probably motivate more marketing of this. Also, Apple has there's been a report Apple's still selling these things, right? I would imagine that the day that the time capsule vanishes from Apple stores, Apple stores will have something that they will recommend for wireless back. (laughs) Yeah, or, or, you know, there'll be somebody who sells a hard drive that's a networked hard drive with time machine support that that, that you will plug in somewhere to your your Ethernet or it'll be a Wi-Fi configuration thing and it'll be validated by Apple or... or, um, with officially or Apple will have chosen it and said this one works and, and we think we can sell this and, and we're going to sell this in our retail stores. I think that will all inevitably happen. Yep. I, I, you know, people do it. I know we know lots of people who back up to NASA's using time machine and it works fine. And, uh, you know, I don't because I have a Mac mini that I back up to. So I'm, I'm backing up to it instead, but you can do that too. Mm-hmm. So that, that's my feeling is it is, I heard from a bunch of people who said, but if the future is wireless, why is wireless backup going away? And my feeling is, I don't think wireless backup is going to go away. I think Apple is going to be able to point to somebody and say, um, they, they're doing it. And even if Apple doesn't do that, which would surprise me, I think that a- any opportunity for Apple retail stores to sell uh, a NAS box to somebody who's buying a laptop for their wireless backup, they will take. But if I'm the maker of a device like that, I'm going to look at this as a huge opportunity to make sure that my time machine support over the network is rock solid because I can swoop in where Apple is abandoning the market and take uh, and take customers. Yeah, I think even though um, some people are upset with 
what is left in like the monitor space or some of the dongles and stuff. I think Apple's being pretty responsible in that if they're not interested in doing something anymore, they're helping other people make it. Yeah. So we'll see about that. Uh, I use Time Machine. I I think Time Machine's great. Uh, And I just have a little hard drive plugged into my iMac. And there it goes. It just does its thing. Yeah, I heard from somebody who said that they had never uh, used time. time ca- they tried Time Machine that way with a, an external drive, and that it had never completed. And I, I didn't know what to say to them other than that I've used it a lot with an, uh, a directly attached drive, and it works fine. You might mm. need to. I would say maybe if it's never completed, maybe the drive isn't big enough. It's possible, or there's some, you know, or maybe the energy saver settings are wrong, and it's going to sleep before we can finish the first backup or something like that. But I've, it's made to work that way, and if it doesn't work it, for you, something else is wrong. Your hard drive is wrong. Something on your Mac is wrong. Something's messed up because that's how it works. That's like it's meant to work that Aloha. way. Hello, Andy asked, "Do either of you have a favorite ginger molasses cookie recipe?" Now we mentioned ginger molasses cookies last week. Now I have only ever had ginger molasses cookies in one place. But I love them, and it's in Blue Bottle Coffee. They sell them in Blue Bottle. Well, it's funny that you should mention that, Mike, because he's asking because there were uh, my uh, review of the uh, MacBook Pro with Touch Bar. It was sitting on my kitchen counter. Yep, and you had the next, recipe up. A recipe was up, mm-hmm. and there was a box of cookies next to it that were the ginger molasses cookies that the recipe was up. Um, it, and uh, and so because I made it, and they were really good, and I'm going to make them again. It's funny that you mentioned Blue Bottle because, in fact, the recipe, and we'll put it in the show notes, that I got from my friend Sherry on her blog, Pork Cracklins, but it came linked from another blog called Pixels and Crumbs. It is the Blue Bottle Coffee Ginger Molasses (laughs) Cookie Recipe. (laughs) So there it is. You need a lot of ginger. Let me tell you, I grated a lot of ginger for those cookies, but they were great. They were super spicy and sweet and fantastic. So we'll put the link in the notes. Um to the direct, and I'll, uh, maybe we'll put in the link to Sherry's blog because Sherry writes a lot of great stuff about food on pork cracklins. And uh, yeah, they're they're great. So the like, I would say if this is very specific, but if you ever do go to Blue Bottle and you get the New Orleans coffee, which is my favorite coffee drink that they make, which is their cold coffee, it pairs perfectly with the ginger cookies. So. I recommend them. Okay. So, so I think, what right. are they in New York and San Francisco, I think? Yeah. So, or you make your own. Oh, you can make your own. Make your own. All right. Um, Lachlan asked, a, he wanted to, to take a kind of uh, survey of the two of us as to how much we're using Apple's iMessage features that came of iOS 10. So we have all of the things here. So, Jason, how often do you use iMessage apps? Never. Same here. I don't have one that I use. What about stickers? Sometimes. Always, every day, constantly. Mm. Ironically and non-ironically. I use stickers for fun. I use them for information. I use them to convey emotion. I think it is fantastic. I love them. I love them. I'd use them more if they worked on the Mac. Yeah. I would use them even more if they worked drag and drop in uh, iPad split screen, which they do not. Oh, yeah. Yep, they don't. They do not. It was so funny. And when 10 was released, you could drag them, so they would come up with a drag animation, 
and then you'd try and stick them and they went away. So they, in 10.2, they fixed this feature. How did they fix it? You can't drag them at all in split screen. Nope. <laughs> that is not the way to fix the problem. That, uh, that, is, that is a terrible way to fix something, but that's how it is. So I hope for a, a, a change there in the future. What about effects? So like the uh, confetti and the explosions. Sometimes. I use them ironically. I agree. But I still do use them. I use them ironically more than I use digital touch ironically on my Apple Watch, right? Like that was an ironic thing that wore off, but I still am use sending those message effects because I think they're funny. But I don't use them to convey anything seriously. It's all for fun. Um, because sometimes someone will send me something and it is hilarious, right? Like it, it works. What about digital touch in iMessage? Oh, digital touch. Never. Never. Handwriting. Never, never, never. Never. Tap back. Sometimes. That one also works on a Mac. Yeah. I sometimes use it, uh, like to thumbs up a message or something. Tap back. I always forget it's there. You can like press and hold on a message. I think you 3D touch the message and you get those little bubble balloons that pop up. Uh, I think that Apple should make that a a better to access system. Um, But yeah, I do use that sometimes. So that's it. I think apps... Apps kind of have been overshone by stickers, as they should be, because apps, I'm not really sure how much they should really live inside of iMessage, in all honesty. I I don't think that I've really seen any that I'm that keen of. Um, Stickers are amazing. And I'll ask ask a quick question for today. Chris asked, would you buy an audiobook edition of Made in California by Apple narrated by Johnny Hive? In a hot second, will I buy that? Of course. It's what we all want, really, isn't it? Just to to hear him talk about the stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this goes to the core problem with the book is that it's a, uh, it's just a photo book, and mm-hmm. anyone could have hired a good photographer and made a photo book, and uh, the stories about the products would be much more interesting. So, yes, uh, an audio book, I would say, a documentary about Apple design. Oh, yeah, everybody who's like, oh, they're so self indulgent, but like, okay, so don't have it be released by Apple, but a documentary about Apple design. Um, with 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 just Johnny Ive in the white room and and photography and videography of those products, I think would be a really cool documentary. That would be great. But that's my problem with the book more than anything else is it doesn't actually explain anything about Apple's work. It just shows it, and we already saw it all. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, we're gonna, that's the end of Ask Got Great today. Uh, after this break, we're going to be doing Mike at the Movies, and today we're going to talk about Gremlins. No more technology talk for the day. So if you either haven't seen Gremlins yet, or you're just you know you're not interested in the Mike at the Movies, no more technology talk. But we're going to be talking about Mike at the yeah. Movies, Gremlins. After we take a moment to thank our friends over at Smile for supporting this show and supporting Mike at the Movies, and today I want to talk to you a little bit about PDF Pen Pro. Eight, which is the giant Swiss Army knife for PDFs. Imagine a Swiss Army knife that had so many tools that it needed a wheelbarrow to pull it around in. That's what PDF Pen Pro is for PDFs, but luckily it's a piece of software so it doesn't add any weight, which is great. PDF Pen Pro can add signatures, can edit text, and even images. You can perform OCR on scanned documents, export into Microsoft Word format, put anything in there. It's amazing. Like seriously, PDF Pen Pro is If you use PDFs in any way, this thing is going to make your life easier. It does for me. I have PDFs sent to me so much. I have Word documents that are sent to me that I need to somehow sign. I don't don't know what people expect when they do that. 
Uh, like, are they? Do they want me to print and then scan? Like, no, I don't do. It. I don't own a printer. I don't even own a printer because I use PDF Pen for all of this stuff. With PDF Pen Pro, I get a document come to me. I sign it. I send it back. I can even export it back out in Microsoft Word so they get the file as they would have expected. It makes my life easier. It means that I can sign documents and contracts within seconds rather than needing to take days to get them printed somewhere else or go somewhere and print them and scan them. I don't want to deal with that. I just look at PDF Pen Pro to help me with those things. Also with PDF Pen Pro, you can create an interactive PDF form. You can build a table of contents, set document permissions, convert websites to multi-page PDFs, just so much more. You can even now create portfolio documents to combine related files into a single PDF, and you can also attach files to your PDFs as well. There are things that PDF Pen Pro can do to PDFs that I didn't even know could be done to PDFs. You can get 20% off the new PDF Pen Pro 8 by in November, so you haven't got long, by visiting smilesoftware.com slash upgrades. If you are hearing this and you are interested in this, go right now to smilesoftware.com slash upgrade. If you've not checked out PDF Pen Pro, now is the time. Thank you so much to Smile for their support of this show. I like that all in the chat room has said, can you not go like to a library and print it out? I don't want to. I don't want to go and print it out. I just want to use PDF Pen Pro instead. Yeah. Thank you so much to Smile Can't you for just their support. Go to a mailboxes store and use their fax machine. <laughs> can't like, I just yeah, go and could, buy some but... mailbags? No, I can't. No, Cannot. you have a mailbag. I sent you a mailbag. You already have a mailbag. I have all the mailbags I'm ever going to need. This is one of those put things that... where I'm like, I love that I've got that, but it's like I have to move that mailbag. You do but have I can to put move things that mailbag. in the mailbag. You put things in the mailbag, Mike. Exactly. That's what it's it doesn't have to I put be mail. mail in there. You could. Print out your mails. Put it in the bag. Time to talk about Gremlins. It's time for Mike at the Movies, and we're talking about Gremlins from 1984. Mm -hmm. Shall I do my usual and tell you what I knew or thought I knew about Gremlins before I sat down to watch it today? Yes, let's let's start there. That's always a good place to start. So my my understanding of Gremlins um, is that it's a scary movie but aimed at children. That was my assumption. Uh, and that the gremlins, which I believed were called gremlins, like that these these little monsters, these little be- creatures were called the gremlins, and that they were cute furry things that become monsters when they are either wet or fed after midnight, and that it is a cult classic movie. Mm-hmm. So I was close. You're close. You're very close. So the thing is that they, they become monsters when they're fed. They multiply when they're wet. And yes. I don't think that this movie should be aimed at children under any circumstances. Nope. Nope. In fact, this movie was one of the examples, along with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, of why they needed to add a new rating to the film rating system in the United States called PG-13 to say that although it was not a, 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 a rated R movie, rated it R. was... It is is playing at um, <laughs> it 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 was uh, inappropriate uh, or at least special parental guidance needed to be added for children under the age of thirteen and that was a new this was one of the examples why they added that because they felt like this was not uh, PG PG meant uh, anybody could go of any age but we recommend that parents be aware of the content and uh, they added PG thirteen which meant this is really not for for um, for younger kids you should be doubly aware of the material here and it's it's i mean so i haven't seen this movie since i saw it in the theater in 1984 
also I'll, I'll point out the uh, amusement it was it was released i believe a week um away from when ghostbusters was released hmm. in the summer of 1984 it's a christmas movie it's set on christmas eve why again it like miracle no on 34th street why these movies set at christmas are released in the summer it's baffling to me but i don't know why christmas. this is a christmas movie well there's that too right <laughs> uh what you know there's so many reasons so, it makes so anyway, no difference I was blown away because I I have no I had no memory of this. I mean, I had the vaguest memories of this because I hadn't seen it since 1984. So yeah, and when I when I was 13, PG 13, hello, <laughs> that was me. Um, yeah, so so directed produced by Steven Spielberg, uh, written by Chris Columbus, who was sort of uh, he went on to make like Mrs. Doubtfire and uh, the first couple Harry Potter movies, but he wrote. The Goonies and Gremlins, um, and uh, well, he in fact we're we're doing a we're doing a Chris Columbus double feature because he directed Home Alone. <laughs> yep. So there's there's one. a there's a lot of Chris Columbus here. So yeah, it, it's a it's a weird movie. Joe Dante is a horror movie director. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know Steven Spielberg, I think wanted that kind of mix of horror and comedy and kind of the, the, you know, the Christmas time like aspect, I think uh, is an interesting, it's interesting in its incongru- incongruity to the rest of the movie. Can you answer for me what Steven Spielberg presents means? Well, he was the producer of it. I, I, I think that the, or the executive producer of it, I, I think he made it, he made it happen and he was connected to Chris Columbus. I suspect that he hired Joe Dante right. to do it. Like, and it's got like, it was a selling point that like, it was a Steven Spielberg film that he had made. Yeah, because a bunch of movies have that to it, don't they? Yeah, it's, it's, he, he, uh, you know, it's his, it's from his factory, but he wasn't going to direct it or write it, but it was from his, you know, from his group. So that was, that was the idea I think behind it. I should point out also, if it isn't already obvious, that this is not one of my favorite movies of all time because I literally haven't watched it since I saw it in the theater. So this is not one of those Jason exposes Mike to one of his favorite movies and hopes that Mike doesn't hate it. This is a different kind of experiment we're running today on Mike at the Movies. Well, good news, Jason Snell. Yeah. Because I hated this movie. <laughs> Never do this experiment again. I I, hated this movie. See what happens when I don't, um, when I don't supervise the, uh, the, and handpick the the very best content for you. We decided to go for the holiday theme, right? As we're in the holidays, that was the idea. That's the idea between the Gremlins Home Alone double feature. But it was so far a terrible idea because I I really (laughs) dislike this movie. This is the only Jason upgrade uh mike at the movies that i had disliked um this is the only mike at the movies movie where like i was doing other things while part of this movie yep. was on uh i i watched it today and i i really i i can't talk about the movie without stating that i hated this movie okay i didn't love it <laughs> um i did not love it or or probably like it i i spent the first I don't know. I spent a while hating it, and then I got to a point where I kind of liked it. Okay, p- part of it, and then sort of in the middle. You know, I got to be honest. I really enjoyed the part where my favorite part in this entire movie, and maybe you can guess what this is. My favorite part in this entire movie is the part where the mom kills lots of gremlins. Yeah, that's. A great I loved bit. that. That's I a, loved that. It's so weird. It could, 
and, and the whole movie is really like all of these tropes of horror movies and play and, and Christmas movies and playing with them. And it's meant to be kind of wacky and satirical at times and zany and, and over the top. It's got, it's got some severe tone problems throughout. Yep. It, it, there's so many things wrong with this movie, but the uh, mom at home is such a, you know, she's the next victim. The kid is going to be shocked that his mom has died. She's been killed by all these gremlins. She's, she's, she's a woman. She's at home alone. Uh, she's she's gonna very be a like victim. emotional and like, and, and like dithery right? before that, right? Like she's not really shown as a, a strong character. Yeah. And she puts a gremlin in a blender. Mm-hmm. She she does she, she microwave. She microwaves one and stabs one repeatedly, like with a knife. Yeah, with like, a big kitchen knife. Uh huh. Like slasher it's movie so, style. It's so great. And and the gremlin that goes in the blender just like explodes into like gremlin goo. After like goes screaming every, so and pleading great. to be let out. <laughs> yeah, it's I love that part. Now I will also admit, I disliked the movie at that point enough that mm-hmm. i was really happy to take out some of my frustration by having glee at the death of gremlins you like, know what die all right. gremlins because die what Just preceded die. this is the worst part of the movie which is like the extended montage of the gremlins causing trouble and hurting people which you, you can see why okay so the other the other thing i i noticed about this watching it back is this seems like one of those kind of crowd scenes in a Muppet movie mm-hmm. where they're panning across a bunch of Muppets you don't really know very well. They're like the background Muppets and they're all, they've all got something weird to do and they're, and you know, they're making, they're going, hee 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 the manic Muppets are doing weird things, right? And, and uh, it's like a group scene and then they cut away to like Kermit walking by and, and uh, calm down everyone or whatever it is. It felt like, it felt like that which is not my favorite thing about a Muppet movie, extended for ever <laughs> in time. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's all of the lesser uninteresting Muppets doing annoying things for minutes and minutes and minutes. And I didn't find, I didn't find any of it amusing at mm-hmm. all. Like, the, the, the gremlins in the bar... Uh, where the Peter Gabriel song is playing in the background, yep. like it's just, ugh, yeah. So why is she not... serving them? Why is she? Why is she why, serving them? Why is Phoebe Cates serving? I guess I guess she feels threatened by them or something, but she's sort of acting like everything is normal and she should just serve the gremlins. It's like I'll keep lighting the cigarettes. Like I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. My main problem with this movie is nobody ever reacts to the gremlins appropriately. Yeah, like no, I think you're right. Why does he buy it? A why, creature. Why does, he, why does he? Why does he buy the the mogwai gizmo? Yeah. Why does he buy it's it? A, it's it. You know, it looks like a Furby. It's a it's a weird animatronic uh-huh. stuffed uh, you know creature that that in the movie. Okay, it's alive. It's a movie that's never been seen before. I don't know why does why does Randall Peltzer, the inventor, this incredibly broad character played by Hoyt Axton, known for his country music and his narration, who's not a very good actor. Nope. Um, why does he get this thing? I don't know. Cause he's a, he's a, I think the idea is cause he's an inventor with big, big ideas that are also bad ideas generally. And this is his latest bad idea, which is I can market this thing. Right, it's but also he very doesn't tr- think that until later in the movie. Like his I reason for buying right. it is I need a Christmas present for my son. And here's a weird animal that, that nobody's that I've ever seen before at the, uh, speaking of all the tropes at the, um, 
Chinese oh, curiosity God. shop, yeah. right? With the guy with the pipe and the long beard. It's like, what are you doing? I f- well, you know, and it's one of those things where it's like, I think it's knowingly knowingly tropey, mm. but it's not satirized no. in any way, which it's is like, like dead serious. No. You just it's like, hey, hey, you know the you know those horribly racist uh cliches? We could we could throw some of those in. It's like, uh just maybe do not. It. But like um, then when yeah. when when Billy opens the box, everyone just accepts this thing. Nobody yeah, questions a, like what is a, this? It's a magical creature we've never seen before. When he takes it to the scientist, well, like okay, the science so, teacher, the science teacher's like, All right, I'll do some experiments. This goes, Nobody this, ever so, questions it. <laughs> so I'm like, this goes to the tone problem of this movie, because it's meant to be fairy tale like, right? This is meant to be a fable. Like the whole like don't don't uh, show shine bright light, uh, don't don't uh, get it wet, don't feed it after midnight. It's very much like a a fantasy, a fairy tale yeah. kind of thing. These are the except, rules. Yeah. Except I feel like they don't really play that up like i don't feel like i'm watching a fairy tale and yet the rules are kind of fairy tale-ish yeah, and nobody so you questions this, the rules and everybody so breaks them indeed yes everybody does break them and then the other thing when when uh when the dad comes back to town right so when mr when randall pelzer comes back to town after his convention which i'll get to that convention in a minute the oh whole town is like in disrepute and he arrives magically in the store where the striped gremlin is dying and he never questions what the hell is going on. Yeah, the like, whole he never town says, has been like, destroyed. What's happening? It's like, oh, that thing's just melting in front of me. Like, dad, give me a scarf because Gizmo's dying on the floor. He just gives a scarf. Like, never questions the thing. Like, just doesn't question it. And this is probably because he's such a bad actor, as you say, right? Like, there's no expression yeah. on his face. The expression is just like, well, this is going on. You know, you know how good an actor uh, uh, Hoyt Axton is. Is that he uh, about three years before this was in a TV movie based on also a Christmas movie based on uh, a Christmas Carol called Skin Flint, a country mm. Christmas Carol with yeah. my friend and incomparable colleague Steve Lutz. What? <laughs> I didn't know this. Steve, Steve Steve played Tiny Tim. It how? you can oh uh, yeah Skin Flint. <laughs> A Country Christmas Carol. It's on YouTube. You can, you can check. You can check it out. Yeah, he's the, he's the yeah. A- anyway, uh, that's just a little <laughs> a little aside. That's kind of amazing. Is it's it's uh, it's yeah, it's totally on YouTube. Anyway, uh, so yeah, Hoyt Axton is not a very good actor. That that's the bottom line. He he was a. I, I think he's kind of a pretty good narrator. Like a let me tell you a story about a boy who got a funny little creature and it turned out to destroy a town. Right? I also that, didn't understand why the narration was even there. Well, I think it's because it's Hoyt Axton, so you make it a narration. But then he's <laughs> acting, and it's like, and and then it's very much like they're reading off a script. So that's not great. The destruction of the there are several points at which the complete destruction of the town is kind of. Uh, like hand waved, like uh, but people can still get around, and uh, you know, talking about the, the town. This is Hill. That's Hill Valley, right? Oh, I don't know. It is. It is a movie set town with I'm lots pretty of snow sure blown onto it. That's Hill Valley. It looked exactly it's, the same. It could be. Um, I assume it's the same, like soundstage or lot or whatever they that yeah. it was called. Because they, like, they, they had like they had the clock tower, right? Like that, and then they had the store on the corner, which is the bank, but was clearly the restaurant. Like I'm, I'm pretty oh, sure yeah, okay. that was Hill Valley. I, I believe it. it. That set has been there forever. There's. Did you know that the? Uh, I believe that set is used in the pilot episode of the Twilight Zone. 
I've never seen a Twilight that, Zone. That, that, that town has been there a long time, that, uh, that, that town set, mm-hmm. and it still gets used. Um, I, I, so, so the Mogwai itself, Gizmo, I think is kind of cute and weird, and I like that, I like that he never turns evil, that yep. he comes around with Billy in the backpack throughout their adventures together. Yep. He's helpful at a couple of points. I think that's fun. I think that fits in with the, this is a fantasy story. This is a, this is a fairy tale. This is a boy's journey with his loyal pet slash companion teaches him to like sing along with music and stuff like that. I think, I think, I think Gizmo is cute and fun. And, and although he's very limited by the fact that he's an animatronic blob, um, I think, I think I, I like that part of it. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think. I, I like the fact that when the when the gremlin escapes to the swimming pool, that it does. It actually does what when you're watching it, you think they won't do. You know, I I assume when he goes to the swimming pool, it's like, well, they're not gonna have like hundreds of gremlins that that would destroy this entire. Nope, they're they're gonna do that, right? It's like all it right. It was a good thing. To, it's like the logical thing, right? He's gonna go find the biggest body of water he can, right? Like that's yeah. logical. That that is so, one. Log- that's yeah. maybe the only logical thing in the movie. Like one thing that is. I'll never understand when they when they spill the water on Gizmo. Why does he never take him out of the water? It just leaves him there to continue spawning new gremlins until he's done. I don't know. And also, um, like that is one of the first like super gross things in this movie. Like the way that the gremlins are born is just so gross. And like yeah. er, the, all of the eating stuff, like when they eat the chicken and they have the, cro- the close ups on the faces with like the teeth, and it's, that's disgusting. The breaking out like, of the cocoons is disgusting. Ugh. I kind of like that those were disgusting, though. I thought that, I, I thought that was it. that was kind of fitting because the gremlins are disgusting. Um, I liked, yeah, the fact that they like you get water on them and they get like boils, and then the the, the gremlins like mm-hmm. pop out. That was kind of that was kind of kind of gross. Um, also, the fundamental was- flaw in the idea of uh, Billy's dad uh, thinking that he could sell the Mogwai. <laughs> You can't sell them because they multiply for free. How do that's you sell true. them? You sell one it, to one person, and then they just multiply. Them. Well, but that's the that's the um, this is the problem with the trouble with tribbles. Have you ever seen that the episode of Star Trek? I know the original what Star is. Trek. Yeah, I know. Okay, I mean it's the same premise. It's that there's a fuzzy thing that's cute, and somebody thinks that he can sell it, but it turns out that they they reproduce at a vast rate, and so they're worthless. Um, they're cute, but they're worthless to speculators because mm-hmm. they the, the you can make more of them really easily i'm sure there's a parable about this about rabbits or something that's been around for thousands of years it's the same it's the same idea can we talk about some ridiculous things let's let's yep. let's mention christmas eve in general because i think one of the things that stuck with me when i watched this movie as a kid is that everything happens in this movie on christmas eve which doesn't need to be the case nope. it could be the christmas season but they make it all christmas eve because they want to have it be christmas eve climax into christmas day but like people are in school on christmas eve that doesn't happen um, people are, uh, there is the inventors convention happening yeah. on Christmas Eve. Why would you plan a convention on Christmas Eve? Why would you do that? <laughs> well, the inventors I think are not that bright, but we get two, <laughs> like two scenes with Hoyt Axton in like a phone booth with people walking by at the inventors convention. It's the most I, I did air quotes set there. of all time in any movie. It's right. like a couple panes of glass and a beige background. And like, they have a couple of extras walk by. Oh, 
It's amazing. And, and, but later on, there's like somebody in like a box with a thing that is like supposed to be an invention. And you're like, oh yeah, inventors. But again, it's Christmas Eve and and they're busy at the inventors convention on Christmas Eve. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but the perhaps the most ridiculous scene in the movie uh, is, is uh, the one in which at long last, I don't know, like, do we care about this character at all? But at long last, uh, Phoebe Cates reveals why she doesn't like Christmas. <laughs> after after we've seen her say this repeatedly, uh, there's the super we haven't even mentioned the super broad scenes at the bank where there's Judge Reinhold who's a who's a a, a, a jerky yuppie kind of guy and there's who Polly I cannot Holiday. take seriously because I've seen Arrested Development. Well, you shouldn't take him seriously in this either as Gerald because he's awful. Polly Holiday, who is Flo on Alice, is essentially Cruella Deville here. She's ma- she's threatening dogs now. Okay, she is basically the- a MacGuffin villain. She she is she is a MacGuffin villain. She is so. First off, uh, Billy has his dog at the bank. Doesn't make any what? sense. How did Doesn't he get make it any in the sense door? At all. Nobody should have accepted that as the thing. No, and then and so the dog's at the bank, and then sh- and then the mean lady comes and like and then the dog attacks the mean lady. He doesn't even need like, to oh, take well. the dog to the bank. Why does he need to take the dog? No, we we don't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And then and then Polly Holiday in another scene that I I I, I remember very clearly is she's got her little uh, uh, staircase elevator thing that she mm-hmm. uses because she's an old lady. Even though she walks around fine, she doesn't go up the stairs. And of course, the gremlins rewire this later so that she's ejected out her window and 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 flung in the air and presumably is dead um so there's that but then there's then there's the the finally we get the reveal of phoebe cates's super important character point which is she hates christmas which is a whole speech about how her father went down the chimney to bring them presents dressed as Santa Claus, but he got stuck. And then, and so he went missing and they couldn't find him. And then they went to the, they, they, it was a cold night and they lit a fire. But when they were going over the fireplace, they smelled something awful and they thought something died in it. So they called somebody out to, to take off the chimney and get out the dead thing. And then it turned out that it was the dead body of her father dressed as Santa Claus. And he'd been there all along. Ooh. And it is just terrible. <laughs> Talk about tone, though, right? <laughs> See if you can guess what line I'm going to bring up. I when, can't. I can't. When uh, is her name Kate in the movie Phoebe Cates? Yeah, Kate. Yeah, very inventive. Uh, yep. When they're they're walking down the street talking about Christmas, Kate Phoebe's, and she says about how Christmas is depressing, and that lots of people are sad at Christmas. And she says, when most people are opening their presents, some are opening their veins. Wow. What a line. Yeah. Why? Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of, I hate Christmas. I just don't like Christmas. And yet she's never really redeemed. Like, I mean, she's got a good reason to not like it, although it's super extreme. <laughs> but then, I don't know. Again, tone problems. Like, they, they threw, like, like Billy's mom, uh, they threw a bunch of stuff in a blender and out came a disgusting ooze. <laughs> <And> so, uh, <laughs> I mean, because cause it's like, I can see how there's a movie here, right? I can see how there's kind of a fable about a monster and it's mishandled accidentally uh, or a cute thing that's mishandled and it and they, it generates monsters and it wreaks havoc. And there's a, there's a boy and he likes a girl and the girl is a bah humbug kind of character. I can see all of the, like the outline of the movie here that is like a holiday movie that's a fable about, about uh, I don't even know what the fable's about. We'll work on that. That'll be in the rewrite. Don't eat but off the what, midnight. What you have 
Yeah, no midnight snacks <laughs> and wear sunglasses and stay, and, uh, stay dry. Uh-huh. Stay dry. Bring a towel. And, but the the end result is just a it's just a mess. It's just a huge it's a huge mess. It's 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 wacky and uh, anarchic. And if you enjoy a wacky mess involving puppets, then this is the movie for you. But uh, I can't I can't endorse it. Oh. Um, they really love Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. We didn't mention that too. And uh, that leads to another scene that I really like. I love the scenes where they kill gremlins, it turns out, where they like break open the gas main My and God, light a I fire know. and blow up the movie theater. Jeez. I thought that was that was kind of great, except, of course, the one, the stripe gremlin escapes again. Who so decides to... to use a crossbow and a handgun to try and ward off Billy. This yeah, film is in, so in the... weird. Oh yeah! In the end, they're in the hardware store, and there and the, yep. and there's a whole like a battle in the hardware store. Uh, oh, and they say at one point they say it'll the sun will be coming up soon, and like five minutes later, they can open that skylight, and bright light is streaming in from the bright day outside. Um, okay, yep. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. Didn't like this movie, man. No, it's not good. Don't watch it. Nope. My apologies to those who like it. If you like Gremlins because you have fond memories of it as a kid, don't watch it. Don't Again, it. just yeah. keep your fond memories. If you do like Gremlins and all of the things that we talk about and you watch it all the time, I don't know what to tell you. Shine <laughs> on, you crazy diamond. <laughs> it's a bad movie. Bad, bad, bad. Movie. Bad, bad, bad yeah. movie. Yeah, it is. It Didn't is. Like this I, one, I, I, like I said, I what I take away from it is my glee in in the murder of all the gremlins. I'm not sure I was supposed to take that away, but I did enjoy that. I did all the, and this also makes it inappropriate for little kids, I think. But I did enjoy uh, these gremlins who I hated being just destroyed in terrible ways and stabbed and blended and I mean, like literally, a gremlin is microwaved to death. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was kind of great, <laughs> but that's it. Didn't like this movie, Jason. No. Well, we got another chance with Home Alone, which mm. I haven't seen. Well, I know I love that movie, and and I have watched it recently. So like, I'm not just going on right. nostalgia. Like, Home Alone is one of my is my fa- probably my favorite Christmas movie. I mean, either that or Action Skyscraper. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good one. Yeah. Sad, sad, sad divorced cop. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, we'll see what I think though. The, the shoe is on the other foot now, Mike. There's a movie that you really like. The question is, will I like it? So that's coming up. Mm. We're going to be, uh, that's going to be on the episode on the 12th of December. So we're a couple of weeks away right. from, uh, a clear redemption for Christmas movies. Right. Cause it doesn't matter how you feel about Home Alone. You'll like it more than Gremlins. Okay, fair enough. I'm very and confident for people, of that. For people who enjoy Mike at the Movies, we'll remind you that we make a uh, feed of just all of the movies Mike watches with various people over at The Incomparable, theincomparable.com slash Mike. There's Mike at the Movies feed. So if you ever want to go back and like, what did I remember that they watched Raiders of the Lost Ark. What did they say about that? All of the ones from... Uh, from here, from analog, and e- there's even at least one bonus that didn't appear anywhere else. Yep, there's so, going to be another one. That's great. So people should check that out because that's that's a nice way. Like if you're if you're saying, oh, remember when they talked about that movie? We just made a feed because why not? Basically, mm-hmm. why not make a feed that's the that's just the movie talk? And that so that's over at the incomparable with a wonderful logo featuring your glasses, which I can see right now in a poster format. Oh that Frank made for me that I have kept because it is going to be taking pride of place in my office. Wonderful. Mega office. 
in mega office so it's an incomparable.com slash mike uh so this will be this will be here in about a month's time in that feed but as i said between now and then there is going to yeah. be a, a special which i'm going to be doing uh i think this week i'm recording that so excellent um so yeah go check that out if you want to, if that's going to be linked to that in our show notes you can find those over at relay.fm slash upgrade slash 117 thanks again to our lovely selection of sponsors today smile encapsula mac weldon and mail route we will be back next time if you want to find jason online in the meantime you can uh, find many of his shows at relay fm and the incomparable and he is over at sixcolors.com at jason l on twitter i am at i mike i m y k e thanks so much for listening we'll be back next time until then jason say goodbye to everybody <laughs> perfect perfect it's actually a very good impression um, <laughs> never do it again <laughs> nope